0: Today's businesses are on a vigilant watch for threats. In an ongoing cyber war, it's time to get real-world solutions to protect and secure your valuable business information anytime, anywhere. Welcome to Cybersecurity America with Josh Nicholson. You're about to gain special access into a world of restricted information and a backstage pass to the inner sanctum of cybersecurity operations. Here's your host, Joshua Nicholson.
1: Now, don't forget to hit like, subscribe, comment, share, and turn on those notifications so you don't miss an exciting episode. Welcome to Cybersecurity America. I'm Joshua Nicholson. Today's episode, we're going to really tie into mentorship. What does it take to go from an entry-level person into the field in cybersecurity? I get this question all the time. One of the main focuses that a lot of young students or young people ask is, how do I get into it? What is the best way to contribute? There's so many different options out there. When you see, you can get into this program, spend a lot of money, waste a lot of time. And we just thought it would probably be best that let's have a show on that. Let's try to tackle that and and see what might be best from that. But before we do that, we're gonna jump into our threat intelligence report via our Deep Seas sponsor and Aaron Beerland. So Aaron, take it away.
2: Thanks, Josh. Just a few reports that have come across the Deep CTI desk for this week. Obviously, the very large one being the ransom or sorry, royal ransomware attack against Dallas. This affected the city of Dallas quite quickly. There were a lot of mitigations that immediately had to happen. We saw them shut down their emergency systems. There were 911 operators that were actually having to hand write dispatches and deliver them directly to police officers, as well as several other critical systems that had to be taken offline during the mitigation of this ransomware attack. There's nothing specific that we've seen that suggests that this was targeted by Royal Ransomware, just a ma- just matter of them finding a big fish in a pond and being able to go after it. But it does show uh, how quickly ransomware can affect the daily lives of everyday people when it strikes something within critical infrastructure. We're so used to hearing these things in news sites of affecting companies and the way that data leaks and things like that affect a company that we may or may not do business with. But when we see it hit something like critical infrastructure, it it definitely has a large scale effect. And at that same time, we have to look at this and say, why would these actors be afraid of striking something like a city? They've basically been able to go unencumbered for this long. Sure, we do see some federal law enforcement action against ransomware operations. But a lot of these groups exist within countries that are not going to play well with U.S. law enforcement or even European law enforcement. This is going to be a big win, as it would be seen by a lot of cyber criminal actors. And it may influence follow on activity to see some of these competing groups try to get a bigger fish if they can. And so this is something that's brought some good attention to the idea of where the nature of our infrastructure in the United States is how we're properly securing and segregating a lot of these critical networks, but it is also a lot of work for us in the security industry to try to communicate best practices on a level that is manageable within some of these municipalities. The other thing that I would draw attention to is we discussed last week on the Intel briefing, the atomic Mac OS info stealer that was out. But in addition to that, there's a second phase of that came out, but it's drawn some focus to threats that exist against Macintosh. This is something that a lot of people say is, I wouldn't say that it's unhackable, but people felt relatively far more secure on a Macintosh device than say a Windows device. We did just see Apple roll something out, which is known as their Rapid Security Response Program. This actually scared a lot of our clients because they took that as an indication that there were large-scale vulnerabilities against Macintosh operating systems or iOS, what we did is in researching it, because there wasn't a lot of communication coming out of Apple at the time, is explain that this looks more like something where they're going to have a rapid response in the in between patching cycles in the event that there is a vulnerability that needs to be fixed or even just some minor patching and not something indicative necessarily of a large scale vulnerability. But the communication that we were seeing from Apple didn't really fill that need and did cause a lot of nerves to get rattled when we looked around the security industry and had a lot of clients that were asking us, what's going on? What do you know? What have you seen? Why do you think they're doing this? What vulnerabilities are out there? What are they not telling us? And so this does show where... Even when you're trying to maybe do some of the best practices out there or serve your customers, lack of communication creates a lot of anxiety within people don't trust some of these larger tech companies to be fully forward when it comes to security issues and be fully honest when there's a vulnerability that can affect a lot of different businesses and a lot of different users. So one of the big suggestions that I make to any tech company that I talk to is you need to start building trust by being communicative forward. Take the hits. If there's a vulnerability in your software, admit to it, put it out there, communicate as much and as effectively as possible, but definitely get as much of the the security community involved to help patch that, help fix it, have those bug bounty programs that people are getting used to really show that you're security focused and you're focused on that end user and protecting them. And that's just... That's not a, necessarily my opinion directly on Apple, but we did see it throughout the industry of people being really concerned whether or not this was signaling something big that was affecting Apple, that they were not communicating. And so there's a lot more work to be done on that security approach. But if they're pending any questions on that, those are the two briefings that I have for this show.
1: That's interesting. So they're suspicious that something else is going on because of the method of communications that they chose made the situation worse or everyone doubt what their intentions were behind it. Is that what you were saying?
2: Yeah, a lot of users just suddenly saw a rapid security response show up on their devices and then there were articles written about it. But there was really no explanation. What's a rapid security response? And when you went and looked up what it was, they just explained that in between cycles, we're going to do this patching. And the question, the natural question that came after that is what are they patching for? And because now you're talking about large scale organizations that have to put this into a patching cycle and they go, okay, but what are you patching? What's the vulnerability? What's the effect of it? Do I need to immediately institute patching? Is this an emergency or can I gradient this? And there was no real explanation.
1: Need to go in cycle? Does it go out of cycle because of its risk? How hard are you are going to push? Yeah, all that stuff. And so, since I didn't have answers for that, you had to assume the worst.
2: Yep. They assume, yeah, of course, they assume the worst because, worst case scenario, you're going to be best prepared.
1: And it looks like Dallas is going to be struggling for a while here. Anything more on paperclip from the last vulnerabilities that were out there? You did a report last time, last week on paperclip. Anything new?
2: What we saw with with the paper cuts vulnerability was we were seeing it be leveraged by ransomware operators that continued to be the case throughout the next week granted the communication of that we did see a lot of patches go out we did see a lot of application of it many organizations had already had some of them had deprecated it not not been using it but it obviously was popular enough that we did see that lockbit activity primarily and i believe i think royal was the other group that was also targeting it uh we didn't see anything large scale come out of that and from the dark web side of the house, we didn't actually see a lot of increase, I would say, in victims from what we normally see within our monitoring, though obviously it was something that they utilized and something that was a good vector of approach for them. But it didn't look like it gave them a qualitative leap to expanding their operations any further than what we've already seen.
1: I appreciate that, Aaron. Thank you so much. forward to your next brief. Thank you, Josh. And then today, we also have a great guest today. So I always wanted to have a focused show on mentorship, what's out there. I have a nephew of mine that's getting into cybersecurity. I've had to do some homeschooling, use a combination of online training, and then inside my lab and so forth. And I just saw there was just a lack of resources or understanding of what's out there. And so we wanted to bring on a special guest that I've known for a while. Now, this this is Steve Cobb. Steve brings more than 30 years of leadership and consulting involving IT infrastructure, cybersecurity, incident response, and cyber threat intelligence. Now, Steve is currently the CISO for Security Scorecard and has led cybersecurity and IT infrastructure teams at organizations like OneSource, Verizon, Microsoft, RBC, PNC Bank, and Capital One. Steve serves on several CISO boards and is a frequent presenter at conferences such as InfoSecCon, Cyber Defense Summit, and others. Steve is passionate about sharing his knowledge and his experience with others through mentorship and training. He's a coach for the U.S. Cyber Team. Steve attended UNC Charlotte, but left early to start his own IT and cybersecurity consulting company, and ultimately received his degree in business from East Carolina University. Steve and his wife have two daughters and a son, and he resides in a beautiful Western mountains of North Carolina, where he likes to fish, kayak, and as much as he can. And welcome to the show, Steve. Did I miss anything or misspeak thing? I think you didn't go to UNC Charlotte. It was the other UNC campus, right? The East Carolina, is that right?
3: I, I went to UNC Chapel Hill, but I finished my degree at East Carolina University in the eastern part of North Carolina. But yeah, all good. Pleasure to be here, Josh. Good to see you again, and great to, to be on the show with you. I appreciate the opportunity to come out and speak about this topic. I think uh, hopefully people will find a lot of good useful information out of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, Steve, I wanted to start off just with some basic questions. What exactly is the U.S. cyber team? It sounds like uh, the U.S. team, almost.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. I was asked to join this past season. It's essentially, and you'll see this throughout all the universities across the U.S. and across the world, actually, many of them have cyber teams or cyber clubs,
1: it's trying hard to do it in a very structured manner sometimes. But if you could tell us, what is the U.S. cyber team? It sounds like it's the U.S. Olympics almost. Like it's
3: Yeah, yeah. Is it- it's really cool. So it's it, it, a lot of universities in the U.S. and well, across the world will have a cyber club. And in these cyber clubs, typically they'll do CTF games. If you're not familiar with CTF, stands for capture the flag. And it's where they have cyber challenges around cryptography, stenography, reverse engineering, forensics, all these different categories. And you have to go and do a puzzle, a challenge in order to find a capture a flag. It could be breaking into a system or breaking into a web application, any sundry of things to capture flags. And it's a competition. And the U.S. Cyber Games is a culmination of trying to get a team to represent the United States because there are competitions that happen internationally. In fact, this year the IC, the International Cyber Competition, is in San Diego. Last year, it was in Europe. This year, it's here in the U.S., and our team is going to represent the U.S. there. This is the second year of the U.S. Cyber Games. There's a third season already in in, in process, getting started, and so folks can go and try to sign up or join the U.S. Cyber Team and become a part of that team. There's a, just like in the Olympics, there's a qualification you have to go through and go get, do a test and go through some cyber competitions and score highly there. And then you get into a interview process. You get to join the team and you get to go represent the United States in these cyber competitions. Last year, the U.S. placed third. And so we're hoping this year to incline that ladder and become a first place winner there's also regional competitions that happen, so competitions happen in Atlanta this year and several other places where the team went and represented themselves. One of the other one of the really great things is it gives an opportunity to mentorship. It gives an opportunity for people to come alongside some folks that are the age range for the team is all the way up to 25 years old and so it gives a chance as people are looking at transitioning maybe from coursework in school into a professional career, how they do that, what that looks like. All that wrapped around the idea of let's do this in a fun way is they can do game. They can learn skills and take those and use them. In many places, they translate directly into what jobs are doing, especially if you think about cryptography or forensics, Josh, from an incident response standpoint, or even there's a lot of challenges that are red versus blue. So red versus blue means you have two teams that have their own infrastructure. You're trying to hack into the other team while they're trying to defend it. And the same thing is going on the other way. Those are really chaotic. Some big ones happen at DEF CON and some other places. We take those and use those in the U.S. Cyber Games to train train athletes on how they can get better in their cyber skill sets. And also, once again, do it in a way that's fun, learning process. They can network and they can translate into potential careers. I'll send a link. At the end of this, I'll send you some links, Josh, that you can post for this. One of them will be for the U.S. Cyber Games site. And they're taking registrations right now for the next competition that's going on. All the way through the end of this month, so encourage people to go and take a look at it and apply.
1: That sounds great. So it almost sounds, in many ways, like esports. Versus-
3: yeah, it is. It's very heavily tied to esports, correct?
1: And so I take it you get trophies, and you, I did some capture the flags when I did Sands training. Uh, yeah, and I think we get a gift card or something.
3: That's uh, right. There's 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 trophies. There's money involved. So as well, there's teams that get money, especially in some of these regional competitions. There sponsored by companies like MasterCard or Microsoft or Google. As you can imagine, these kids are extremely strong in their cybersecurity skill set. And so these companies are using this as well as a training ground or testing bed to see who their potential employees can be, because they're choosing folks that are really showing advancement and expertise in some of these areas. The other great thing is this year they just started what's called the pipeline program. and So the folks that did make, we take 30 athletes made the team. Then we took the next 30 and put them in what's called a pipeline program. They're going through and getting some of the same training, the same exposure with the idea that they can grow and either become a a member of the U.S. cyber team the next year or if they age out or they don't make the team, they still get the same type of exposure as the athletes do. So it's a really great program for for folks to get involved in that are interested in cyber and want to have fun doing it. And as you mentioned, I'm sure you saw this, but those capture the flag games are really fun. They're they challenge you. You got to think sometimes outside the box. And it's just a fun way to go about learning skill sets. And we find it really impactful.
1: Yeah, I remember my first capture the flag. This was during my Sans GCIH and we had to follow Sun so now. I had just had a meeting I had to go take out out in the hallway. So I missed the intro. I missed the- oh no yeah. Uh, so when I got in, they were like, okay, you just got off this call, but I need you all to, this is your team. They don't have team members either. So it was four. Usually you have four in a team, just me and this other guy. And I remember, okay, we got to catch up. And I started talking about, you start reconnaissance, I'll start this. And he didn't even know what his IP address is. Oh. <laughs> IP address on the laptop. I went, oh my, this is not going to work. I'm on my own. And I got through four of the flags. There was six total, but I ran out of time because I mm-hmm. started what do you say to those people who want to be part of the cyber team it's obviously very competitive but you just want to play the game and be a part of it and learn as you go forward because you're new to it you're not going to compete competing and representing the united states it's like the same sounds like the same as the olympics but what do you do for those people who are just new to the field how do they get involved with
3: this so that is that's always been a challenge for those capture the flag events because it's the nature of it. The people who are really good to get good at it gravitate to it. And that's who you get to show up. And so a lot of times you have folks that may not have an interest or don't want to compete or get that deep on it. They don't participate. They don't join in. Or the other side of it, Josh, is you get somebody who really wants to do it, but maybe they're not their skills aren't established yet. And they can't get through the first challenge, right? or They fail at the first one, the second one, and they just throw their hands up and say they're done. The pipeline program helps out with that a lot. But we've also, with the US Cyber Games, really tried to institute a beginner learning path. And so you can come in and participate in some of the CTFs that are a little easier. They help establish your skill set. And once again, remember, there's some gamification here. So you're looking at how to play the game and how you can make the game more applicable for you to win, and some of that comes into play. Experience and doing them goes a long way. It is a lot about the skill sets and the understanding those things that you can do within the game. But experience and play in the game. For instance, for, for what we do, typically it's anywhere from four to eight members on a team. Sometimes these CTFs are individual solo. For the, um, for the tryouts for a cyber game, it's an individual solo competition. You're in there all by yourself. But when you're in the international competitions or the regional competitions that are bigger ones, you're a team. And so all those dynamics come into play. It's not just about, can you solve this puzzle? It's about you're competing against other teams. Who's best at this challenge, managing time, managing resources. It becomes an ecosystem there within those CTFs, and it's a really interesting dynamic. So we learn a lot about these cyber athletes because it's not just who can break the the hardest crypto code. can reverse engineer the hardest malware it's also about who can communicate who can collaborate with their team who can work together in order to overcome the challenges they face in order to win the competition so it really in it really impacts all the aspects of these folks that are athletes within on the u.s Cyber team i
1: think it's interesting you
3: call them athletes right (laughs) it It is something that was interesting to me too it's peculiar but when you see some of the training and the things that these these young people go through It really is. I may not, they may not be exercising their muscles to swing a bat or shoot a basketball or throw a football or kick a soccer ball or whatever it might be, but they're exercising their mental capacity. They train, they go through a lot of studying and testing and we call them athletes. We we do mimic the U.S., the Olympics here because we do consider this a competition and these are the very best. And we've got kids that are, you know, we've got kids on the team this year who've done things like finish the NSA's Codebreaker Challenge. That's These are you know, 20 years old kids and that are doing major accomplishments in the cyber world. I couldn't have fathomed back when I was 20 years old, if I'm honest. So these are really highly skilled individuals that are on the team, but we really are trying to get exposure to it so we can get more people involved. And I think that leads to more and more discussion that we're going to have around mentorship and professional development and really how people can get involved in the cybersecurity workforce.
1: Yeah, that's one of the keys. I'm trying to get my nephew in, for instance, and I have mentored and trained a lot of cybersecurity people over the years. And what I learned it was the most effective. There's one guy I had mentored several years back, had no experience, no network experience, no computer, literally had. Mm-hmm. And now 10, 12, I think it's about 12 years later now. He is, uh, now it's about 11. 11 years later, he is now a senior cybersecurity person running a whole hospital. And I think the methodology we started off with was just get your IT basics, your network basis, yeah. hard. Don't just jump into a cybersecurity program and start talking about firewall rules and IDSs, and, and you do not have the network basics. I started off in IT. Um, after I got on the Marine Corps, I started off in communication electronics and then server administrator. So I was in my for mm. years. Yep. Went over to the Cisco world, became Cisco CCNA. The MP actually sat for the CIE. I really had that hardcore networking experience. And then my degree at night, I was going to night school for 10 years. I went to Tulane University, got my degree in software programming with a computer information systems with a minor in telecommunications. Then I got, was going into cybersecurity, like 2001 is where I dedicated my career from IT and went into the cyber realm. And those hardcore networking skills, those hardcore IT skills were- They help
3: out a lot, don't
1: they? Yeah and I would use them over and over again. How many security problems were resolved by understanding how the TCP IP stack works? Yeah, Being able to filter out ports and protocols when necessary. And I can't tell you how that was necessary. Understanding active directory, how are the counts work? What are the protocols between them? How do you harden them and configure them? All that played into a cybersecurity field. But when I was coming up, they didn't have a cybersecurity degree, training, yeah. I I went to Sands when the conference first came out. It was only 2 years old, 3 years old. Uh, Steven Northcut himself was teaching the classes at that time. And I've just seen kind of Sands explode. And that they're one of my favorite training providers. I've taken yep. for Sands, so I got three or four certifications with them. And it's just been a phenomenal learning experience there. And yep. I would come home from a SANS conference and just go wow. And just I just felt like the whole world from a visibility opened up, almost like it was from the Matrix. You just, yeah. You took the yeah. wrong and all of a sudden, you you see what everything's like and so forth. So I thought it was just a great experience. How yeah. You, a young man, let's say that you have a young man that, that you want to mentor. Obviously, you have these teams that you're talking about, but what would you suggest taking a junior person? Would it be the network? I started with the Network Plus, CompTIA is A network Plus. Or-
3: yeah. These days, we talk about certifications and the training for those certifications. I think you're right. I don't think it's a necessarily a prerequisite to go down that hardcore IT networking stack, but I do think the people that I see that are most successful have that background. They have some exposure to it, let's say it that way, because the folks that just see, if you're looking at cybersecurity as a paycheck and you don't get that underlying experience you're going to be in the dark a lot of times as those discussions happen around you, around ports and protocols and firewall rules and what happens in an application and side loading DLLs and all those sorts of things that you have no exposure to because you didn't go through that. You're going to be. you'll never be able to achieve the level that your peers will, in my opinion. So I normally talk to people around the idea of certifications. Look at the Network Plus. I think that's a good one. Security Plus, I think is a good one. Even some of your Cisco's, your CCNA and CCNA Plus Security, and some of those that give you some background there. I normally would recommend people do things like the Network Plus. Security Plus, I think is really good. So Cisco, like the CCNA and the CCNA Plus Security those really get you a foundation in networking, like you mentioned. And then I think a sysadmin course, whether it's with Microsoft and, or something in AWS or Azure or Linux sysadmin, gives you some understanding of the systems themselves, how you manage them, how you administer them, as And that also gives you insight into what the vulnerabilities are in the areas that an attacker might compromise. So I think those things stacked upon themselves give people the most chance of success. Now... Once they land in the cybersecurity world, you know as well as I do, there are a thousand different disciplines you can go into in cybersecurity. And that's part of the learning process as well is what are you passionate about? What do you like? And those are the areas that you can focus further development and further training on once you understand what it is that you're really passionate about.
1: Which that's why I think it's important just to talk about the fields and the industries and so forth, because there's such a huge misconception. So we did jump into the cyber teams and then... What is the background (laughs) really with the focus on a technical information security person? But Mm -hmm. let's just talk in general. So you have a group of people that are technologists, that are cybersecurity technologists. They're the guys in the firewalls, the routing, the switching, all that kind of stuff. That's the world that I come from. You also have a group that is more of the risk compliance focus or GRC focus. They're Not guys that need to know hardcore technology, have certifications, know how to route, how to do any of that stuff but they have to understand controls and risk and mitigation. And there you don't need to have advanced cybersecurity skills in, in that area. You also don't have to be great at math. I hear this all the mm-hmm. time. So yeah. I'm really good at math. Same. I think I could do cybersecurity. It's like, great. What a great friend. <laughs> I'm not really great at math either. Yeah. But guess what? We use simple math in cybersecurity. Adding, cybersecurity, mm-hmm. dividing, it's not like we use calculus all day long. Yeah. So, It's really interesting to have that. So you have someone who says, hey, I want to be in cybersecurity, but I'm not an engineer. I don't have a degree. I'm not technical. Hell, I'm 35, 40 years old. There's no way I can just go back and do that. How do I still get into that field? And I think there are plenty. There's programs that are able to help deliver a program, do the risk management pieces of this, work with third-party vendors, like third-party risk management.
3: Yeah, huge. Right. That's security scorecard. Yeah, for sure.
1: Maybe talk a little bit about security scorecard because that, that plays into a GRC role.
3: So it it does. Yeah, and for sure. That's that the ratings platform. So security scorecard is the first platform for ratings where we can take basically a grade that we have assigned to an organization. And most companies will use it to grade their vendors, right? We see a lot of third-party supply chain attacks that are happening these days. The 3CX attack that happened a couple of weeks ago was actually a fourth-party vendor attack. But we see those things happening a lot these days. And that's an area where security scorecard focuses because we can help help organizations understand their own risks. So we do some attack surface intelligence, as well as grading their own posture, a security posture, And then we give them information on their vendors and how they're doing. Because if we know our vendors are at risk, as well as I do, then if they probably present risk to us because they've got some type of access to our environments if they're providing a service or software, an application to us that we're using. So security scorecard helps bring those pieces, connect those dots, if you will, around third party risk and help vendor organizations understand their vendors and how they may pose risk to them, as well as that attack surface intelligence. So they have a one of the largest scanning networks to look at vulnerabilities and compromises around the world that there are out there. And so we're gathering data around vulnerabilities that we see, network traffic. We have DNS and black holes and honeypots and all that stuff that's coming in. And it's feeding the platform as well. So we can see that if company X had a breach, they've got data leaked on the dark web. That should affect their score, right? Because it means they've got a higher risk, obviously, and they pose a higher risk to me. And that's an area where we see a lot of folks that come out of college. Josh, as you mentioned, I've seen this happen in the GRC and compliance space. They get really good training in college, theoretically. But when they come into the real world and start trying to apply what they've learned to practical operational security, hey, we know that there's a vulnerability out there Now, how do we address it? What is it that we do to mitigate that vulnerability? And that's where the gap is if you don't have that well-rounded security knowledge a lot of times.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I see that as a technology platform to do that third-party risk management. You can have the cybersecurity training and governance and so forth. There's tracks fully for that in the leadership side. That's right. need those people so bad. Those are critical positions inside. Correct. And everyone just thinks technical, engineer, but you have GRC. Yeah. You have another group of people that focus on identity access management. So instead of having being an IR specialist and a forensic specialist and all that, they focus on identity access management. So how do you set a privileged access management program? That's right. CyberArk, for instance, to check out as a PAM solution, check out passwords and so forth. But what they don't realize is how that there's a huge career just in that while there is a technical side of IAM platforms, like single sign SAML tokens and and so forth, the, there's more of a governance or a business program that's wrapped around it yes. than anything. And you have to experience, I had a show on ID access management where a good friend of mine, Rekesh, it was, I don't know, three, four shows back. And Request was explaining how, because he got, does IAM for, or did it for AIG before a chain mm-hmm. company, so for AIG. And he was saying the user experience is what's usually not thought about. They think, hey, this yeah. is authenticate. This is a good way to make strong authentication on that. But they never think about, or they lack sometimes in the thinking of how does this impact the user? How do they authenticate? It? They have to type in their password every three Yeah. It, yeah. it won't be used. It causes. Yeah. And he talked about that you have to have an IAM security background, but you also have to have a customer support management type focus. And that you're not there just to lock down the place; you need to facilitate business, including users having access to applications and data that they need to do their job, and nothing more. The principle of least privilege.
3: Yeah. So what else? I, I think that's uh, and I think that's a good overlay too in all the cyber realms. So some of those interpersonal skills. To your point, people think cybersecurity is just technical, and I'm looking at zeros and ones and trying to figure out: is there an attacker there? You have to deal with customers still. You've got customers that complain. you got to deal with issues that come up. You've got to be able to speak to someone and translate a very technical t- topic in layman's terms a lot of times to people within the field. So there's skill sets that you have to learn with experience that go along across all these. Another one, that you mentioned there, I've tapped on a little bit is incident response. Incident response is that one that people love to, to talk about because it's really sexy. You're dealing with attackers many times, you're fighting hand to hand combat with a nation state actor or an attacker that's gotten in somewhere and you've got to battle them out and kick them out. And there's great stories to tell. But that person that's an incident responder or forensics analysis uh, analyst, those are very special skill sets. And it's not just about the skill set, it's also about how you work because. Uh, as a lot of times it's you rush in your Superman to save the day, and a lot of times it's long days, and long nights, long hours. There's a heavy stress, a lot of anxiety, and then you go into a oil for five or six days, and I've managed IR teams where We've hired people who really wanted to get in that skill set, and they presented well, and they did the job well, but the hours killed them. Hey, I can't work at night or the weekends.
1: It's the lifestyle. So I've been in IR for years now. I'm an incident commander for Deep Sea, so when we have these big incidents, i jump in. And I've gotten used to the lifestyle. Mm-hmm. My wife can't stand it sometimes. Yeah, yeah. There's been times I'm out at a movie and had to come out of the movie to seriously, but the attackers don't have a timetable. They don't. We look at most of these ransomware attacks that were occurring, you'd see initial exploitation on a Tuesday or Wednesday. Then it would stay dormant till Thursday afternoon, mm-hmm. Friday afternoon. Friday. they go active. And then you're battling an incident over the weekend. Yep. Less staff. You can't use. So incident response, while I admit is one of the sexiest of mm-hmm. different fields, it is one of the most demanding. And it's really hard to have a nine to five schedule. In GRC, I could see you having a nine to five.
3: Yeah. You
1: know, yeah. Emergency GRC, maybe you're behind. Don't work, but for the most part, you get off at 5 p.m. You're fine. Some of the other positions here, when you look at forensics, I get a lot of people say, "I want to be in forensics because they saw CSI." Yeah, yeah, It's not like that. Right? <laughs> in there and he goes, "Hold on, I'm going to hack into the CIA." <laughs> and then by the time he types three questions, he already knows what the data is, and just, hmm. oh yeah, it looks like the credit card was used down the street. Her grandma was down. Bull crap! It don't yeah. work that
3: no it does not
1: or you see the movies where he's like i'm sorry hold on i'm hacking in the secret database scans it's like you're not doing anything you're scanning a network that's absurd. so it's funny to see hollywood try to portray what the job is but in many cases the incident response job is looking through lines of logs it's yeah traffic it's jumping for it is a very meticulous detailed thing And that's incident response. Forensics is pretty much like you hear. It is uh, where incident response is the detective, like the homicide detective that gets called in from the police department. The forensics guy is a crime scene investigator. They tape off the area and they're the ones that are pulling fingerprints from things and DNA and all that kind of stuff. Most of the guys I know that do that type of work and they do it for law enforcement and it's all kiddie porn. It's all that kind of stuff. And you have to sit there and collect. Yep pornographic material to be used in some case, and it's just a horrible existence. Most of forensics guys, they can't even be on those cases for too long. Yep. So that's you you happen to see all that all the time. So the glamour of the real world of it is not what on CSI. I'm sure there's some really glamorous forensics jobs and all that you can have, especially in the U.S. government, but
3: normally in the commercial field, no, it's yep. as sexy as you think. No, nope, I agree completely. And that's why I think it's, Important for people to get exposure to all these disciplines and understand what it is they really like to do, because sometimes the real world, to your point, looks much different than what you're on TV or seeing a movie and that sort of thing, for sure.
1: Some of the cooler jobs, threat intelligence, right? These mm-hmm. guys are not highly technical, but they do have technical skill sets that have to go along with it to understand things. But Aaron on the show, for instance, gave you the intelligence, mm-hmm. in four or five clients that he delivers services on. And it's being involved in what's going on around the world, who's doing what. And like what Aaron will tell you, Aaron's former NSA, so he views kind of things in a different light. Sure. But the way he focuses on it is that his job is to know the enemy. And once you know the enemy and you know what they're doing, then you can evaluate yourself to see where in the world you're at. What neighborhood are you in? Are you exposed to this threat actor because of the vertical unit? Yeah. Technology, you're using a Siemens system, and they're targeted because of this. And so there's there's a lot of those kind of pieces. And it's not the technical, uh, what do you call tactical, IOC-based right intel. That's That happens where you have IOCs, indicators of compromise, right? oh. address, URL, file hash, and you send that out to tool sets. Somewhat effective, mostly not. Uh, they're aged so fast and so forth. Yeah. But have that aspect but what they do too is the strategic intelligence where it's let me understand your business what is it who does it do business with what other third parties i want to monitor from an intel perspective your third parties in case they get hit i can notify your third party risk management i think what's great with intel is we use it we can combine it with a vulnerability management program where you have threat informed vulnerability management so should i go and patch these thousands of machines and make my guys work the entire weekend no threat intelligence says there's no exploit in the wild for that to exploit that it would be extremely difficult where we are exposed it's deep inside of infrastructure it's not exposed so for those reasons i do believe you should patch it however you don't have to work the weekend yeah from a prioritization perspective i think no doubt so you can imagine that threat intel you don't need a whole lot of technical skills but you definitely need training that's focused and i think you probably could easily and somewhat go from a signals intelligence threat Intel background to a cyber, yeah. Uh, in many ways that the principles I've seen are- that happen many times, yeah. Yeah. So you saw that. So what else do we have? We have one of one of the coolest teams I have is detection and analytics. So these are the guys that are writing the use cases for sim platform like Splunk and Securonics and Microsoft Sentinel and so forth. So their job day in day out is to find bad better, quicker, faster, and to make sure use cases are solid, less false positives, and so forth and that's real interesting, obviously they map to a miter attack framework but finding living off the land attacks where they don't download anything they're just using native tool sets they look like any other administrator finding those type are, are the hardest ones how do you yeah. especially if it's a tool that everybody in the organization uses yeah and so you're trying to find this needle and that you're real good at that.
3: Yeah and that speaks a lot to like user behavior analytics and right anomalies what happens there w- when that tool is used is it used by somebody who normally uses it or not in a time frame they should be security scorecard has quite a bit of data science and data analytic folks speak, as we look at all those vulnerabilities or those attacks and we rank those attacks or we give them a score based on all those different variables so think about that's an area too that i think in the cyberspace is growing if you think about all the data that you have and you try to make those decisions strategically for your business, like you said, okay, Cisco just released a new vulnerability. Does it even affect us? Should we worry about it? Where is it ranked for us based on what we have and what how we're using those tools? And that informed decision around vulnerability management and exposure and risk is one of the things that Security Scorecard does is they look at the data science and ranks all those taking All the data that we have from past attacks and plugging that into an analytics platform gives us feedback on, if you do not just this one thing, but maybe if your organization is vulnerable on these three things, your risk is much greater because the attackers are going to pivot, escalate, do other things, their initial compromise, you may be a prime target. Those are the kind of highly complex computations we're trying to make to understand Who's at the greatest risk? Because now it comes down to a game of, really, I'm just trying to make the attacker not attack me. I want them to go attack somebody else. And if I can put some roadblocks up, normally, as well as I do, unless it's a nation state, most of these ransomware gangs or others, when they get to the first blocking point, their ROI is burnt. They're gone. They're going to the next target because there's so many easy targets out there most of the time.
1: Yeah, something like basic. Just recently, we had this ransomware attack on a customer, and we got brought in after the attack to help stabilize them, remediate some things, and so forth. So just doing some basic rename the administrator account and create a dummy administrator account. Mm -hmm. Ransomware has, by default, administrator, admin, root built into some of their packages for low-level attacks like that. That's not going to stop a sophisticated actor. He's still going to yeah. 500 and he's going to mm-hmm. know who the domain account is. It just takes mm-hmm. another step and another level of expertise. So what we're trying to do is eliminate the low level plan mm-hmm. and slow down the sophisticated ones enough to detect them and to remediate them. So those kind of things I think are important and those go all roll into a analytics roles. How do you find detection content? How do you make sure your sensors are updated? Yeah. So that's a whole different skill set that has to do with data analytics and understanding things. So you can imagine a SIM is pretty much a database with a reporting and queries and how to deploy that, how to maintain it. I can't tell you how many breaches I've been on where the part of the cause was because somebody thought they were getting too many true positives or false positives. So they tweaked it and tuned it completely out where you got no alerts. Yeah. seeing seen security systems disabled by accident or temporarily for things moving forward. I had a breach not too long ago where one of their firewalls was sent the syslog, their logs off, but that IP address for the syslog, <laughs> two years. So there was
3: no logs over there. No the so logs the, was, yep. I, every
1: piece is break.
3: Yeah. yeah, they do. And I think that's another place too, where you see some growing need is really around security validation, right? Validating that your tools and your sensors are working the way they should, because you can put them in the way they're supposed to be, but if you don't maintain them, you know environments change on a database basis, especially the larger, complex ones. Then you find out, hey, I thought this tool was working, was it? What? But it's not. We were in an incident not long ago as well, like, late last year, but a very large organization with a very robust, competent security team who had deployed an EDR to all their endpoints, a brand name EDR. I get to mention that's very good and works very well. However, this team had gotten to the point where they did not keep their maintenance up well as far as onboarding new devices. So a new person came in and they found a hole in the system where this EDR wasn't getting deployed to a thousand laptops. And guess what? The attacker did a phishing attack and landed on one of those devices that did not have the EDR, determined that EDR was present in the entire rest of the environment and wrote a script to turn it off for the rest of the environment and just turned it off. And then once they turned it off, they were able to deploy their their encryption and deploy ransomware in the environment. So it's not just about saying, I've got this tool and checking a box or I've got a really good team. There's got to be ongoing maintenance. And that's a place in security validation where we're seeing large organizations put time and resources because they want to make sure that their tools and their sensors are working as they expect them to work. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And we do a lot of that stuff. So I've seen a shift in the industry where they talk about, I don't, I don't want to just find... Bad, quicker, faster, better, and be protected. But I have way too many tools, and yeah, using data, and that. Is so that we're doing tool rationalization front. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, do you really need this one? Yeah, the last ransomware attack I was an incident commander for. Yeah, they uninstalled CrowdStrike. They mm-hmm. were able to uninstall it, re-reboot the machine, and before you know it, it was trivial. Now, mm-hmm. it was a privileged access problem that caused that. It's not like by default, anyone can just uninstall your EDR product. They right. all have rights and it was just, it was a bad setup. Yeah. And so you'll see how these controls will contribute to that. Yeah. Right. So what else we have? Data analytics, as an example, de- deploying sim systems, that's a skill set mm. there in itself. Then we yeah. have your pen testers and your pen yeah. testers, red teamers. So these are the guys that are trying to break into either an application, a network or a system of some sort being physical as well. I, I love that one time I had to do physical testing and try to walk into a building and not get a badge and try to go through the door. Now, granted, we couldn't do something anything stupid, but uh, like rappelling in from the skyline. Yeah, yeah, a bit fun. But it was interesting just to be able to to do that aspect. So you had the pen testers. Ah, uh, some guys really good at networking. They got to be able to do penetration testing on networking, and then the other mm-hmm. side of this, which is normally not always the same skill set, is app pen testing. So you have to actually know applications and systems and code, in and so forth. And I've done some app pen testing and reviews, and it's difficult. So whole new world. It's not as easy as the, on the network. Yep. great. So you have that skill set. Then you also have just continuing to move on. You have the incident responders that we had talked about before. Yeah. And so we do incident response. We also have where you have a managed detection and response capability. So Mm -hmm. monitoring your CrowdStrike 24 by 7 and responding and being part of that. And then as I continue to move over to the right here, we have different services like dashboarding and reporting, and we call it LMR, Learning Metrics and Reporting. And this is where any program that you have has to have some metrics, some SLAs, has to have some guidance, some actual governance over it, and it's got to be reported up in a sound manner in order to be able to manage these risks. It can't just be some guy running around configuring things. That's right. And so that's where you will see a lot of focus. And that is a skill set that people can come up to speed really quickly. They can go through the cybersecurity management courses, mm-hmm. same got a manager's course too as well. So you can understand about risk management, you can understand about governance and reporting, and that's something you don't have to be an engineer. Yep, that's right. You learn the terms, and learn the controls, and you work with those engineers to actually implement these things. But we need those types of roles, risk management.
3: Agreed. And I think another one is as well, like the a lot of organizations will have a security awareness training department or trainer, right? And so they're in charge of their phishing simulation, phishing simulations, or their internal security awareness training, really developing the program for organization to raise the culture and the awareness within that organization for security issues. That's a big one, too, because there are tools and programs out that will do that, but there's an understanding that really it's a change in behavior. I know you know this from working at CoFence, and there's other products that do this sort of thing. But w- one of the things that I've seen as I go in to talk to organizations at, for, with security scorecard from one source or other organizations where I'm consulting is that you can almost tell the what's going to happen to organization based on where their security culture is right if they're not doing the things like taking digital focus on phishing simulation, phishing simulations or security awareness training or really building a security culture in the organization they're going to be have, have a much higher, Risk of being a victim of some of these crimes just because it's not built into who they are and what they do. You know, this as well, Josh, it takes a long time for an organization to build that culture and go through that. It's not something you don't want to run one fishing simulation and okay, we're good, check the box, everybody's great. It's a process that you reinforce with folks over and over again until they become more suspicious. And that's what I always tell companies that I talk to is we want your folks to be more suspicious. And it's okay to be suspicious. It's okay to think about what's going on and really question, should I be getting this email from the CEO at three AM? Probably not. And making those decisions can be critical to the outcome for a business.
1: No, absolutely. Definitely a critical aspect. What are some of the other fields, right? When I go across, keep continue going here, we talked about some of that advisory pieces. and mm-hmm. One of the other things, I see tabletops where yeah. actually a part is running these programs or running these scenarios where the organization's big, you have to be able to coordinate it in a cyber attack. I can't tell you how many times I've been in intrusions where the company wasn't prepared for this. And so mm-hmm. how it communicated internally wasn't even thought of. And everything just broke down. And I think it's always important to have those kind of tabletops as well as infrastructure. There's this really terrible mentality that, that people think is that you move my stuff into the cloud and I don't have to worry about
0: security.
1: <laughs> yeah. Job and it's Azure's job now. Yeah. Um, and it's so far from the truth, right? <laughs> no doubt. Because while some of the security concerns you don't have to worry about like physical security aspects and stuff like that because it's in a data center it's cloud and, and so the configuration managed setting is just as important if not more critical yeah cloud environment in this hyper connected world that we're in i'll give you an example we had this attack against one of our bigger companies or clients, and it was Azure based. So they enabled legacy protocols. So you had POP3 and IMAP4 were enabled on IMAP, or on Azure to support some legacy connections. What that did is allowed people to use ActiveSync on their phones, which if you're not familiar with POP3 Mm -hmm. and IMAP for the team, for the audience here, these are older protocols, POP, Post Office Protocol 3, I forgot all what IMAP, internet mail, something other.
3: Yep, 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 that's right.
1: And their job is to download email, and keep that synchronized with your client. The problem is that they're old. They're supporting these native apps that are on, on the iPhone, but you don't need that when you move to an Office 365 and you have the Office Outlook application on the phone. You don't need to use those legacy. The problem with the legacy protocols is that they don't support MFA. You can't have multi-factor authentication. So it's a single factor. So the attackers were using ActiveSync and just brute force password snuff stuffing until and, and they got access into the system. It became such a problem that Microsoft issued a, an alert, and this was several months ago, that they were shutting down legacy support in Azure. So what happened? They took a legacy protocol because of compatibility and functionality, moved that into the cloud and produced another security vulnerability because of it. Uh, so these things will continue to happen as well as you really yep. the ability to put network sensors there anymore. The traffic's all within the cloud and the VPC, so you're not going to have where you can put a physical network sensor so that you have some patience. And then you say, how do you do security on serverless? What? It just be, it complicates things. So I think there's it a does. lot of people yeah. that want to get into cloud security. I think that is a great aspect of it because the knowledge and dedication you need. So if it's Azure or AWS and you go through that courseware and uh, and you understand the products and how do they work and how they are configured and so forth. You don't have to have hardcore coding skills or that's a whole other different aspect when you start talking about development. Yep. Cloud is big, and we're ramping up on cloud. We're also ramping out on OT, so operational technology, where traditionally cybersecurity has always been in IT world. Now you have it where the OT systems, the conveyor belts, the
3: manufacturing. Manufacturing, systems, yep
1: have gotten a lot more sophisticated and they're full computer systems now. So you have to manage and monitor the security, but you have to do it in a completely different manner. The signals that come from some of these robotic arms and all are not something you can just correlate and alert on and it just, everything needs to be passive as well because you can't actively block anything in an OT world. So I think there's people who can focus on that as a career is huge. Boots out you'll see is exploding in that area. We're over at Deep Seas, we're exploding in the OT field. And cloud is a big aspect. So if you're considering cybersecurity, we've, you've heard about incident response, forensics, we've talked about risk governance. You may want to look at cloud and dedicate yourself in that area. I think that would, that would be a big focus.
3: Yeah, and I will say too, in the cloud world, one of the things that AWS, GCP and Azure have done, those Microsoft have done with Azure, a lot of them have courses that you can take for free. You can go sign up and take the course and even get certifications for free in many cases that help you learn that skill set. And I think as well, a good primer to see if, you, if you're passionate about it, if you feel like that's something you can really hold on to and build your career around. Because to your point, cloud security is here to stay. Careers are being built. Companies are being built around cloud security, right? There's plenty of opportunity in that space for people who want to learn or passion passionate about it. But it is a different way of thinking. And I think that's dedication required there for you to pick all those skills up and be competent and successful at it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the last field is artificial intelligence, AI. So we're, we built a practice. We have about four or five data scientists. And one of the services from our professional services I'm launching is AI readiness assessment, because we get these leaders, the CISOs are being asked by the board. They're going, where are you going to use machine learning, artificial intelligence within our environment? I don't know. I have no clue. Because most security people, have, no, we don't know nothing about AI. Can we program? Absolutely. But large data models and large language models? It, it has great potential, but I don't know how we would use it. So they're going to use use a service that will do a readiness assessment and say, this is where your data is at. This is how clean it is. Because one thing these data scientists always tell me on our AI team is just got to be clean data. Yeah. Gotta, it cannot be done yeah. for junk at ML models and expect it, it to figure it out. It's got to be really clean data, and it all starts with the model and how you're ingesting and so forth. And so I think that's another area, if you're interested in artificial intelligence, yeah, that's in a burgeoning field, obviously. There's not many, if any, cybersecurity people that are hardcore AI guys that I know of. Anyone who's a hardcore AI generally was in the program and development background and world. Yeah,
3: I'll uh, say that is a big area for security scorecard. In fact, they just announced at RSA, they're the only risk platform now that uses chat gpt and ai within the platform so for instance in security scorecard you can log in and ask the question in natural language question show me all my vendors that have this vulnerability and pull back a list that shows you all your vendors that have a specific vulnerability that you may be you may be concerned about so using some tools to take all that data modeling and give you instead of switching off queries and filters and all that stuff just simply asking the question "Hey." Who of my vendors has been breached in the last six months? And all that data flows back so you can see your vendors and, and who those are that you need to be aware of. And maybe there's more tighter controls you need to put around those vendors because of their vulnerabilities. So that is a that field is blowing up. And to your point, I don't know how many times I've been asked by boards or C-suite folks of, hey, what can we do with AI? It's, it's the buzzword now. Everybody wants to understand how they can use it and how they can be better with it. And it does take a lot of complex data modeling to understand how you can use that data in order to inform decisions and make you better, faster, quicker.
1: Steve, and unfortunately, we're out of time already. Just Oh, wow. Conversation, and it was rolling, and you could see how things kind of get ahead. Yeah, yeah. It's time to go. I noticed you, you sent a couple links, and I'll put this in the show description too, but US Cyber Games is <laughs> www uscybergames.com, where you can also have a link for North Carolina Cyber Academy. And that's yep. my Yep. And then Black Hills Training. So www.anti... What is it? Anti-
3: SiphonTraining.com. I don't know if you know those folks. Black Hills Information with John Strand.
1: Um, GCIH Instructor at SANS.
3: Oh, was it? Yeah. So they do a great job of offering training. They do a thing where you can do training pay what you can. So you actually can go just say, I can only pay $50. I don't care. They provide training for you and they they provide great training as well. So I recommend them highly. They're a great organization. My
1: friend, when I did GCIH, he was phenomenal. Yeah. yeah, he's really good. And then you have a link here, Chris Saunders training. So <laughs> www.networkdefense.com forward slash courses.
3: Yes. And so Chris does a great job. He's the head of the Rural Tech Fund that provides technology and cyber training for a lot of rural, he lives in Kentucky, a lot of rural schools and that sort of thing. But he also provides this training. And this training is more of that psychological behavioral training around as you think about investigative theory. That's one I've taken with him. but He has a lot of them, but it's really about what is it should I investigate? Here's my, I've got these signals that come in, these three signals. What do they mean? How do they correlate? And how should I think about looking at those and going and looking at the data that I have. It's really interesting and really good for anybody who's thinking about forensics or an analyst, a SOC analyst, let's say, somebody who's digging into the data to see alerts and what the outcome or what the attacker is trying to do. It's great, great one of the great courses, and they're really cost-affordable as well. I okay, we look forward to tying into that.
1: Steve, thanks for joining us today. And- great. Get your time.
3: And, and to
1: everybody else, please make sure you hit the like, subscribe, you share this out. We have a lot of people who are telling us and giving us different feedback. We ought to cover this in the show. We ought to cover that. And it's just been great to hear some of it. We're up to 6,000 downloads. I just looked at the report just the other day. Every month, it's hundreds and hundreds more every month. So it's encouraging to see it grow. And I just want everybody to stay secure and I will talk to everybody
3: soon. Thank you so much. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate it. Goodbye, everyone.
1: Now, don't forget to hit like, subscribe, comment, share, and turn on those notifications so you don't miss an exciting episode.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Cybersecurity America on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you've learned some valuable information to help you be a better executive leader and navigate today's complex world of cybersecurity. Until next week, stay secure.